Hello, my name is Cameron Wolf, and I'll be having a conversation with Key Williams for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Communal Oral, Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It is Monday, April 8th, 2019, and this is being recorded at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Um, so Key, welcome to Union. Um, I like to begin um, just by um, asking you if you could describe kind of the constellation of identities, experiences um, that, that feel important for our, for our listeners to know right off the bat about you. Yeah, um, I would say that I identify as um, a black, queer, transmasculine person um, living in the United States. <laughs> that is very, yeah. Well, do you have pronouns that you... Yeah, um, I use he, him, or they, them pronouns, sometimes son, S-U-N. Um, yeah. Great. Um, so just to begin, um, did you grow up in New York? Or? Yeah, I grew up in New York, um, both upstate New York, uh, central New York area, and New York City. Um, my family's pretty much split in that way, and so... There's a lot of um, going back and forth between the city and upstate, but I graduated high school um, in upstate New York. And, um, Where yeah. in upstate New York? Uh, Utica, New York, which is mm -hmm. right outside of Syracuse area. Um, and then my family's from Brooklyn, um, Dipness Park area. Um, yeah, my dad's side of the family is Bayesian from Barbados. Um, and then... Um, there is some Dominican heritage in my upbringing, um, as well as just um, Black American. Um, and, and my mom's family is from Florida, so there's just like a bunch of mixtures of um, Blackness, West Indianness, um, and then um, you know being queer and trans and navigating those spaces. Um, yeah, my upbringing, I think, is really crucial to who I am. But um, I'm also, like, one of, I would say, one of two LGBTQ-identified folks in my immediate family. So that's very, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of different places that you just named and a lot of different... Um, kind of cultural influences, I can imagine that created quite like a, yeah, quite like a, a unique perspective on the world growing up. Yeah, it's, I think it's an interesting lens. Um, it involves a lot of constant, I think, searching, but growing and shifting. Um, upstate New York really teaches me to appreciate nature and slowness and uh, diversity um, and being able to just navigate that world in a, in a much more slower pace, in a slower way, and being grounded. And then, you know, New York City culture, loud, um, but just being able to, like, bring all that together into one's person is kind of like, I have no choice but to be queer. <laughs> because, like, um, that's kind of just the, the medley of my upbringing and my, and my background definitely allows for a lot of different types of lenses. What does, um, 
uh, I'm curious what the word queer means to you, or when you say that you don't have any choice but to be queer. Yeah, I think for me, queerness and the word queer is to be able to self-identify yourself across whatever specifically gender spectrums, but also um, looking at yourself in fullness. Um, and for me, who um, is black, black American, queer, trans, and masculine, but um, probably visibly not presenting so much as so um, in society, it's just like an interesting way to navigate the world. And I think that it is the one that most um, captures who I am, even in regards to like um, what I do as a creative versus, not not versus, but also like the way that I love people, my relationships being someone who identifies as poly, polyamorous. And so having like an expansive understanding of self or an expansive interest in understanding mm -hmm. self and then not being afraid to be oneself despite what society um, and the norms of society push you to be um, or want you to be. And that's like parents or that's teachers, or that's you know employers. Um, there's a whole society around you that really tries to shift you from being yourself. And I think being a queer person is both uh, resistance, but at the same time, acceptance um, in how you move through the world. Um, I love that that kind of like self correction you made, and just like really appreciate the humility and um, uh, expansive interest and understanding oneself and that kind of complexity and multiplicity versus just like the understanding just kind of what I'm hearing is that there's a lot of um, a lot of intention and a lot of thoughtfulness and kind of a recognition that we're in flux and we're growing um, I'm curious is there do you have like an early like a an early experience or like what's your earliest experience of, of someone creating space for you to be that be that queer young person or to start maybe asking questions and getting interested about who that young queer person was? Yeah, I think that like because once I started to identify as queer and you know bisexual and starting to really navigate those spaces, um, there's a lot of self-work but there was also um, a lot of being able to be so close to, I think, Hamilton College and being able to be around other folks that were um, LGBTQ um, and really being able to be in that space at that time really allowed me kind of to just step into myself and not shy away from myself. Um, but I just think about the ways in which, um, even in my upbringing, there was an allowance for self specifically for me. Um, and I look at other people within my family and I, I was always allowed a certain amount of freedom to be myself in comparison to my other folks. And I think that that came from deep love and affection for my grandmother, mm -hmm. um, who really just allowed me to be whoever I was um, and loved me. And, and regardless of that, also my pops who loved me and, you know, and regardless of what struggles I had. Um, but in terms of like questioning myself in those spaces, I would definitely say that there were more so social spaces than family spaces or even school spaces. There were spaces that um, 
I kind of just had access and privilege to by my connection with people um, from Hamilton College. And so um, I think that's like the first space that I can identify as being able to ask questions. But um, yeah, I think that part of it is being honest about the different transitions that you go through as a like someone who's like at now approaching 30 can say like I am a queer trans masculine person these are my pronouns here's how I approach life versus you know being an 18 year old um (laughs) in upstate New York um who like has dated um women um at that like even at that point in time or even my relationships I think my, my first relationship with my boyfriend um, who was my best friend at the time, and even that being an open dynamic of me having boundaries around like, mm, you know, I like you, I love you deeply, but I'm not sexually attracted to you. So like, how do we navigate this space of having a intimate, close relationship that doesn't include the sexual component? So there's like so many different things that I think about that are like, oh, maybe these are the areas in which I started to really um, move through those shifts, but it's always been a growing process, right? Um, it's never really been something where I can like self-define. Um, but I also remember like taking the time, even in those moments, to go through that self-discovery process and um, coming out to my mom, um, which was like really weird. It was just like in the car in the driveway. We were on our way somewhere, or I think just sitting there, and I just told her. You know, like, hey, mom, I think that I'm bisexual. I definitely am attracted to women. Um, And she cried, which was like a really weird response. Um, And, but has always been supportive, Um, has always been supportive. She actually like really adores my very first like girlfriend and it was always like, how's how's she doing? And I'm like, mom, (laughs) like, I don't know. Um, You're friends with her on Facebook, (laughs) you know, like that to the same extent that I am. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I think that even in coming out, there has been like a, a rippling out effect um, throughout my family. My mom, you know, knowing since I was a teenager and, you know, my aunt um, last week uh, calling me with some news, but also affirming my pronouns and having some questions around that. So it's been really a life process um and i think that that's something that should always be acknowledged that like even defining my own queerness and defining my own um attachment to masculinity or like acceptance of masculinity or whatever whatever that looks like um that it's been a process but those first moments were social moments in which i was able to see people who um reflected the quote-unquote lifestyle that I um, wanted to live. Um, was there like any particular person that you remember being like, that person, like that, that's that person? Yeah, I think of, um, wow, I think like the first person that I remember was Mika. Um, I don't remember their last name, but they were a student at Hamilton College. Um, they were kind of sort of a mentor to me. Um, real complicated history, of course, but I remember Mika being very, what I would consider genderqueer, um, or like non-binary. Um, I don't know if that's how they identify, but I would say like in my memory, like, oh, here's someone that like navigates the world, navigates the space and doesn't have to decide 
if they're a woman or a guy, um, just doesn't seem like they have to make that decision. They don't struggle with that. Um, and that was one of the first people that I can remember and identify as um, one person that like stood out. Um, yeah, it wasn't until like, I got much, quote unquote, older, but it wasn't really until like I started doing movement work um, that I really began to like identify with like the historical storyline of queer gay folks, you know. Um, yeah, so that wasn't so much older, like an older time. So I think about specifically Mika um, as that first person where I was like, oh, you can, you don't have to be a certain way, or you don't, you know, you can just navigate your world as yourself. Mm. Yeah. Can you? Um Remind us where where Hamilton College is. Yeah, Hamilton College is in Clinton, New York. It's a very small, basically a college town. Hamilton's up on a hill. Um, very well known, uh, kind of a, considered a liberal college, but um, yeah, I really appreciate having access to that campus and being like really embraced by folks on that campus to like, I spent pretty much my entire senior year of high school at Hamilton College. <laughs> It's it's close enough to you. It's close you enough could. that like I can yeah yeah yeah. Um, so you met so as a senior in high school, you like were starting to meet people, or were you yeah were you meeting people or were you going to events like? Um, so I co-founded this um, drop-in teen center in Utica, New York, called Underground Cafe, um, and that was in partnership with. Uh, highly, uh, Haley Reinbold from Hamilton College, who was like a really great friend, um, and we so we we built and founded this drop-in teen center that would do programs for because Utica at the time was the third highest concentrated city for refugees, mm-hmm. um, and on the eastern coast, um, and so we had a lot of folks coming from Bosnia. Um, during that breakdown in the 90s and early 2000s, um, Russian folks, um, there's a huge Bosnian presence actually in Utica, Somali refugees. Um, and so there's a, there's a huge amount of uh, refugee population, but also low impoverished black and brown communities, specifically black folks. And so even though Utica, New York, and central New York is, you know, right there at the foot of the Adirondacks, a lot of folks from the upstate area were never able to really access that. So we created programs like Outer Ground, which was like it would take um, teens from the urban area into the Adirondacks or to camp or to Bear Mountain um, and do that stuff. There also was um, our college acceptance program, um, which we partnered kids with from Hamilton College students and local high school students um, in order for them to kind of go through the college application process together since there wasn't a lot of family support or family time. Um, and that program, like the two years that I ran it led to like a 100% acceptance rate for four-year schools. And I was running this as like a 16, 17-year-old. Um, and that's like where I learned to do graphic design because like I got really pushed, like, hey, we need a logo. Uh, you're creative, draw this up, and then like let's teach you. Like, so self-taught graphic designer from the age of 17 because of the work around the underground cafe. Which is like really just great stuff. We had breakdancing lessons, we did a free bike building day where we would like, Haley's dad would just like collect all these bikes from Jersey and he'd bring them up like in a big truck. He would just bring all these bikes and we'd collect free bikes and then we would 
fix them and then the bike that the kids fixed, they would get ever they'd be able to take home. So it's like a lot of these different programs. Um, and my per- my first girlfriend is a student, well, was a student of Hamilton College. So like that's how integral <laughs> Hamilton was, but it was like building underground cafes, so their sorority came and helped support the building of that, the cleaning of that, which was based in a church, mm-hmm. in the basement of a church. Which, can I ask which church? Um, I don't remember the name of the church. I know that it was on James Street, and I think <laughs> that it recently was sold. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were in the basement of that church, and then we moved to another church which is closer to downtown Utica, New York. And that program still exists, that, that area still, the, the underground cafe still exists. Um, and it's taken over by the school district um, to continue to provide those opportunities for folks. So that's just like, you know, but yeah, and then I would go to events at Hamilton, I would stay over on the campus, I ended up dating someone who went to Hamilton, so that basically I moved into their dorm room <laughs> and, and their suite, and that was a whole situation. Um, you know, I got real acquainted with Hamilton. I applied to Hamilton, um, got in, and then was like, no, I'm not going there. Um, I don't know, did I get into Hamilton? I don't know if I got into Hamilton or I wanted to go to Hamilton, so now I'm like, maybe I got in, but I, I don't know if, I, if that's real or not, you know? Like, <laughs> that was uh, 12 years ago, 2007. Um, so, yeah, but anyway, yeah, Hamilton College, and just, I think, the entire the sense of academia around me, um, or, like, learning and, and all those things always being around me has always provided some comfort. Um, but, yeah, Hamilton College was close enough and really had a really impressionable, I would say, saying and like how I understood the world and navigated the world moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I guess I wanna, um, yeah, just pause and acknowledge that it, this, to be a 16 or 17 year old, like self-teaching yourself graphic design, like having a 100% acceptance rate in this program, it sounds like you were working with peers, right? Like people your same age helping folks, like is really, um, is really an incredible feat. And I, I'd love to hear more if, if you care to share about like how, where, um, like how, if you had people kind of teaching you how to organize or um, if you had like earlier experiences, um, before kind of taking this like massive, and sounds like really incredibly potent and successful leadership role with Underground Cafe. Um, but yeah, how you like, how you learned about social justice or like where you got the idea and if you had, if that was part of the things that like your, your grandmother and your, um, your pops like supported you in. Yeah, I would say that like the first, social justice uh, thing that I've ever been involved in or event that I ever was involved in was at a very young age as a toddler with my grandmother on the uh, union labor, uh, labor union strike lines around um, AT&T, which was at the time Bell Atlantic, and the fighting for um, fair wages for black operators mm. um, to receive equal wages. Um, and to be able, and women, right, to, to be able to um, hold certain positions and be um, doing the work that they were already doing but being paid for it. My grandmother um, had me, I was a strike baby. I was out on the lines with my grandmother. I don't know if that's like an influence or not. My dad was also really um, a part of the Nation of Islam, which has a huge intellectual frame to it. Um, and I would also say, 
a really black resistance frame or a black nationhood frame. Um, and so being raised um, as Muslim on my dad's side, but Christian on my mom's side and seeing that like coexist together um, in my upbringing, that was like really crucial. Um, also just being um, involved in activities and spaces that were about like making things better overall for people and always being invested in that. Um, always being invested in like the perfect world, the most happiest world, the healthiest world, um, and like creating these own, you know, these own, like our own ideals. Um, I had like three really solid friends in high school where we like, we would sit in history class and talk about like, at the time it would be considered politics. Um, but always being really interested in politics, always being really interested in the news, um, and what's happening in the world, um, in in my household, um, including at my aunt and uncle's house, that they raised me pretty much for my teenage years going forward. Um, it's like having a really complicated family background as I talk about this, but um, always being told to do whatever felt right, and not just like what felt right, but what was right for everybody in this space, what was equitable for everybody. Um, coming from like a big family, um, you know, I'm one of ten for my dad, <laughs> one of six for my mom. Um, I'm the only child between my mom, the only living child between my mom and my dad. Um, so having like a complex family background, but really being raised in the church and in Islam. Um, and I think those spaces provided um, kind of that like, you care for one another, you take care of one another, really communal basis um, and wanting to especially for black folks, make our lived experience as healthy, happy, and safe as possible. Um, could I just ask, um, what's your grandmother, or if you care to share your grandmother's, I just wanna kind of fully mm -hmm. honor like this, yeah, my this grandmother, role, she's coming up. My grandmother's name is Dosher. Dosher. She, yeah, Dosher. She's like the only Dosher I know. <laughs> um, she's named after my great grandmother. Um, and she's from Mobile, Alabama. Um, she just celebrated her 78th birthday last week. Happy birthday, Grandma. Yeah, happy birthday, Grandma. Um, she is probably the most, between her and my pops, the most influential person in my life um, in terms of like keeping me. Um, connected to family and also spoiling me and being the favorite <laughs> grandchild and everybody in my family knowing I'm the favorite grandchild. Um, I was the first girl. I was the first, the first girl in air quotes. Um, and I was always in this uh, photo studio, local photo studio called Prince Charming, like a photography, like a photo print, Prince Charming. And my grandmother would like dress me up like every month and take me to have photos, and like, it was it was a lot. Lots of lace, lots of ruffles, lots of hair barrettes, um, and that type of stuff. But yeah, my grandmother um, is really remarkable, um, and she doesn't, she doesn't know it. She's also really humble and really funny, um, but also really able, you know? Like, um, one of the things she said last week when I called her the night before her birthday, we were on the phone for like two hours, and she's like, you know, I'm still up and moving completely. My grandmother texts 
Um, that's how me and my grandmother communicate most of the time is through text message. Um, we rarely talk on the phone because, you know, can't get her to stop talking when she get her on the <laughs> phone. Um, but one of the things she said was like, you know, I'm going to keep on moving through this world. And if something falls off of me, it's going to have to fall off while I'm walking. Mm. Um, and so she's just like, she's really funny. But yeah, um, my grandma Dosha is an amazing woman. Um, well, I'd love to ask, um, kind of when, um, so, so I'm hearing kind of a lot of these pieces of your story of how you, these little, kind of your entryway into a queer life, um, through, uh, through Mika and your, kind of the no negotiations you did with your first boyfriend in Hamilton, and I'm also hearing and getting a lot, like a, a general sense of your entryway into um, a black radical tradition and um, and um, kind of blackness and, and black identity and the um, kind of communalism of your family, but also of the church and of Islam. Um, and, and so I'm curious if there's anything, I guess both anything about those two aspects of your identity that you want to add to, but, or, and also kind of ask when you, when transness or gen, I guess you said with Mika that gender, that they were like a gender queer presenting person, yeah. but kind of when that, that language or that culture or that identity started to be something that you took on for yourself. Yeah, I mean, I would really say that even though there was a presence within myself, there was very limited amount of language, right? And even now, and I've lived in Los Angeles, <laughs> been to Miami, I've lived in Miami, lived in a lot of places up and down the East Coast on my own. But um, New York City is unique in that we embrace and have a lot of trans like language and fluid language, and we do our best to like incorporate gender, or in the, at least in our community, right? And so I would say that to be honest, it wasn't really until I became part of the Black Lives Matter movement and language like a queer feminist lens and um, people like Al Hearns, who was an amazing black trans woman organizer, one of the founders of the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter, um, who has whose work impacted so many and still impacts so many, and you would never hear Al's name, right? You know the three co-founders, but we don't know Al Hearns. And Al Hearns is just amazing. Um, but in the movement is where a lot of language first started getting introduced to me, being queer, being trans, um, and also on Tumblr. Um, Tumblr was also a way that I like I found myself. Tumblr, digital blogging platform. Um, it's like the space where I saw a lot more representation. I saw a lot of conversation about um, uh, transitioning FTM or um, trans awareness and trans day of visibility. It was, but it was really through um, the movement organizing space that I was able to um, identify, self-identify myself, but also learn language and learn the spectrums and, the, and really embrace um, the identity of queerness, of being trans, um, but it was definitely a language, it's definitely a new language, it's definitely a new wave identity. Um, and you see that becoming more and more normalized, which is beautiful, but definitely like in the last five years is when I was like, oh, okay, 
Um, and, and, and going back and forth on that, right? Like, do I include queer? Um, do I put queer, my queerness in front of my trans masculinity? Do I put, you know, I think the most important thing is that my blackness always leads first. Um, but being, you know, black, queer, trans masculine, how do you even put those words together? Um, came through movement work, came through social justice, came through um, being in community with other queer, trans, GNC folks um, in moving through that um, in the best way. But yeah, it was definitely in the last five years that definitely when Black Lives Matter started and maybe, you know, a little bit before then of coming into myself, but having an, a solid identity mm-hmm. definitely came from my movement work. Mm-hmm. So how did you get involved um, with the um, with Black Lives Matter and movement for Black Lives? And maybe also for our... Um, for anyone listening who doesn't know kind of the difference between. Yeah, so Black Lives Matter um, and Movement for Black Lives often get mixed in together. Um, of course, because they do. We um, are built from each other at the same time frame of the movement. Black Lives Matter kicked off in Ferguson. Really, a bunch of folks, a bunch of us from New York went down to Ferguson. Um, Ferguson, Missouri, where Michael Brown had been shot and killed. Um, by a Ferguson police officer by the name of Darren Wilson. And Ferguson was the Midwest uprising that kicked off the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Buses came to Ferguson in a massive uh, cross-nation convergence onto Ferguson um, as we saw our comrades um, and our community members, just everyday people who were fighting back and demanding justice and demanding answers and questions for the death of Michael Brown. Um, being tear gassed in the streets of Ferguson and military tanks um, and militarized police uniforms um, and all these different things that, you know, you don't imagine happening in modern-day America, but yet here it was happening in Ferguson, Missouri, right outside of St. Louis. So Black Lives Matter essentially was this uh, call. It was, a, it was a love call for black folks. It also was a call to action. Um, it was mostly an affirmation. Right, and it was an affirmation that black folks, your life matters, despite what the society of America tells you, despite what racism tells you, transphobia, um, or being murdered in the middle of your street, or being murdered on the corner um, in a chokehold, or being murdered in a jail cell like Sandra Bland, um, or being murdered sleeping in your home like Ayanna Jones Stanley, who was a baby. all these different ways in response to Trayvon Martin's murder, Michael Brown's murder, and Eric Garner's murder. Those murders really piled on top of each other, and it came to a rallying call that Black Lives Matter and that we were going to fight back um, in that name. And that led to massive uprisings all across the U.S. and then eventually across the, the globe. Um, there's a BLM UK, there's a BLM South Africa, there's a BLM in Brazil building. Um, and there's a lot of identifying around blackness for Black Lives Matter. So that was an affirmation and a call, a chant, a hashtag. Movement for Black Lives grew into that, and we call it N4BL for short. And N4BL became kind of the larger container to hold all of these different conversations that were happening in the black movement community, um, be that trans rights, be that um, the acknowledgement of black women and our black leader and black women leadership and the holding of black women who hold our entire community, who raise our community, are the first ones on the front line. Um, 
to embodying black academics, but also black sex workers. Um, the movement for black lives really encaptures all the different ways in which we need to fight against the different capitalistic systems in America um, and anti-blackness um, and racism and all the isms that kind of you know bring down society and doesn't serve anybody for any greater good. So the movement for black lives captures all of that. And the reason why I bring in Al Hearns is because at the Movement for Black Lives convening, which happened um, in Cleveland, Ohio, um, a few years ago, Al was the main convener, the main facilitator of that. She, I at least, I, I give Al complete um, the reason why Kendrick Lamar's song All Right is the movement anthem is because in my mind, and it's disputed between one or two people, it's either L or I forget the other person because it, you know, it's L in my mind, um, played All Right in this auditorium with hundreds of black and brown folks and we just celebrated and joy and that became our movement anthem. Um, and that's why everybody was brought together, groups like Black Youth Project 100, the Black Lives Matter Global Network, which had many chapters um, and is now kind of evolved into a different kind of stance. Um, you had other groups um, like Song, which is based in the South, some Southern organizers on the ground. Um, you had healing groups like Harriet's Apothecary that came together and really supported these different containers. Um, we had a lot of groups, Black Alliance for Just Immigration. You just had a lot of groups coming together and supporting the movement for black lives. Um, and that really grounds a lot of the work that even happens today. So Black Lives Matter was a global network with chapters and they were kind of run by local organizers in this like decentralized way. Um, and movement for black lives kind of was the container to hold all the different work. So that's, that's the differences between those two historically. Um, and yeah. So um, <clears throat> thank you for that really like succinct and clear um, differentiation. Um, so then going back, like when, you, when you're saying that there were just like buses from all over the country and from New York kind of going to Ferguson, like were you, before Movement for Black Lives became a thing or um, like who were you? Who were you mobilized by? Who were you mobilized with? Was there a group that you were already organizing with that you bust down, or were you kind of like Key Williams, like um, solo person, kind of getting down there? Even when they came back from Ferguson, my best friend Janisha Gabriel, Benjamin, um, Ben Nduga Kabaye Buye, he's gonna kill me. I'll call him Benjamin, <laughs> Benjamin of Uganda. Um, my best friend Salamewet Terif, who is. Uh, my older sister, not by blood, but by heart and love. Um, we and Jeremy Vincent, who, who actually is a student of Union, um, we kind of had this little hub. And I moved in with Janisha after I was homeless, um, living in my Jeep um, in Connecticut. And I had posted up on Tumblr, like, hey, homeless trans person needs somewhere to stay. Janisha randomly reached out to me and was like, I have an apartment in the Bronx. You can come stay here free of charge. Get on your feet. I don't know you. And I prayed about it. And God has moved me in this way. And so uh, she calls me the best random decision she ever made mm -hmm. in our friendship. Um, but that's how I came into that. And I, I mean, I already had um, 
some experiences. I mean, when I lived in Connecticut, my uh, partner at the time had been uh, arrested by Norwalk, Connecticut police at a festival. Um, and that really, that was at the time where I reached out to lawyers and people that I knew, um, at least like what you're supposed to do, right? When this happens, you reach out to black lawyers and black movement leaders and you try to get them. And what, what I realized at the time, I was like, wow, they don't care. But it's actually like, there's so much hurt and harm happening against black communities all over that the capacity for your black leadership was really, really low. You know, they couldn't answer, they can't answer every single violent arrest by police across the country of a black person. If that person is a black lesbian, a black trans person, there's not enough capacity. Um, and that was before I got to New York. So I get to New York and then um, about a year and a half after I get to New York and I'm living with Janisha, um, Trayvon Martin happened. Trayvon Martin happened while I lived in Connecticut. Um, but then Mike Brown happens and I live in the Bronx with Janisha, um, and then the ride to Ferguson happens. And when folks got back from Ferguson, the thing was, especially here in New York City, which Black Lives Matter NYC, BLM NYC chapter, was a core member, core chapter in building out the global network for Black Lives Matter. We had the decentralized framework. We were the chapter that came in and said, here's how you decentralize a network for social justice. Um, and that was Ariel Newton, Alan Frimpong, Monica Dennis, um, and there went on to grow many, many others, but bringing in a decentralized network framework for the movement came from New York City chapter. Um, the first donation for the Black Lives Matter Global Network came from the New York City chapter. Um, and so we really did a lot of the grunt work to building out the Black Lives Matter platform while having three co-founders that were black women and really using that as a national narrative um, to ensure that for, for, the, for in history, folks were gonna know that black women led the movement for black lives. Folks were gonna know historically that it was black women who were on the front lines, who organized the masses, who held healing spaces, um, who did this, who created this national narrative. And that was really important for us to have historically in the books um, because that often hasn't been the case. But for me, when they first came back from Ferguson, we had this mass action for Eric Garner. I was not with Black Lives Matter. Um, BLM NYC was kind of growing, and the thing that would happen, the reason why I ended up getting brought into the chapter was that my best friends were part of the chapter, did go down to Ferguson. And so when I would be out on the streets, I would be listed um, with the BLM chapter, they would let folk, they would let the chapter know, like, hey, my friend Key is out there. Here's their date of birth. Um, here's the emergency contact if anything happens. And BLM and NYC ensured always my safety, and I always knew that if for some reason I needed bail or jail support, that they had me. Um, and that was kind of really my entryway into BLM. But for a very long time, I was against it. Um, it was new. I had no idea the people that I'd be organizing with. Um, there was limited amount of structure at the time, and it was a hot. That was the hot summer of 2014. Organizing was just what we did. We were out in the streets pretty much every single day at that point in time. Um, but I was really against joining BLM, and then I end up being <laughs> pretty much one of the core organizers for BLM NYC um, and doing trainings all over. Um, but I think about my resistance. <laughs> at first and, and the continued pulling in and the continued calling in by community. 
and saying like, you know what, you don't have to be considered an actual member, but we got you. Cause you know, a couple of your people are our people, which by default makes you our people as well. And so again, this continued calling in from community um, to making sure that there is a container for folks to be safe. Um, and that ignited kind of my work. Once I got MBLM and I had a political home around me um, and I had folks that I knew had my back and um, I was encouraged to do whatever work I wanted to do to self-organize however I wanted to self-organize, be that in the streets, be that playing the political game, be that you know being a graphic designer and helping to you know design some of the first artwork for the movement, um, being able to just show up however I possibly needed to and could and taking up space and being a black queer trans person who was really, really encouraged to be a front runner leader of this movement, never being pushed to the back, always been you know put in the center um, and being able to step up and step in and having support. Um, yeah, but first it was Key Williams, um, I became Key Williams Black Lives Matter organizer and you know, but at first I was really like, I don't know these people, um, and that's okay, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, uh, it, it's like, yeah, it's interesting. I love this way that um, your friend, uh, Janisha, called you the best random decision um, that she, she ever made. Um, but there's like, in your story of of um, coming into BLM NYC chapter and to into that political home, it was like first there was this like random decision, and then I hear you very reasonably being like, "I'm gonna take my time and get to know these people." And through the demonstration of communal care and safety, and um, yeah, this like what you you know this continued calling in that you're talking about. Um, yeah, it just it's like interesting to hear kind of like both of the <laughs> both that both of those different like perspectives. Um, and I also am hearing a lot of like you know from what you were saying like Denisha like um, prayed on it and it wasn't so in some ways it wasn't just a random decision. It was a guided decision. It was a guided decision, and I I think that that is really also beautiful and important. Um, I'm kind of curious if you could talk about what, um, like you mentioned that the, the New York City chapter of Black Lives Matter kind of helps the, the national movement um, institute like a decentralized framework. And I'm curious if you could talk about why, why decentralized um, like a chapter-based system is important for the for the goals and the aims of, of BLM. Yeah, I mean, decentralized networks aren't new. Decentralized framework isn't new. We've been using those as people forever. The Underground Railroad, Harriet Tubman, was a decentralized network where you had to really trust people along the way, people that you really didn't know, but you had a common belief and a common cause towards the abolition of slavery, but also getting people to safety within that movement, right? Um, and the, the women's movement was also decentralized, um, where you just have a lot of different ideals building over across web. So decentralization isn't new, but it is a tactic that a lot of current movements are returning to and using in order to mobilize masses of people on a mass scale. Um, but it was important for Black Lives Matter specifically because 
for blackness in America and the way you organize looks a lot of different ways based on where you live. How you organize in New York City is not how you're going to organize in D.C. It's not how you're going to organize in Atlanta. It's not how you're going to organize in Columbus, Ohio, or Kentucky, or Houston, or Los Angeles, or Toronto. You're going to organize in completely different ways. You're going to have different storylines, different experiences. Um, but you have a unified message that black life matters and that we're going to do our best to call for the justice of folks murdered by police, um, for the safety of black women and black girls in our communities, for the safety of black trans women and the mental wealth and mental well-being of black folks, specifically black queer and trans folks and black women. Um, we were going to build out this real call and say black lives matter regardless where you are, where you come from. So having a chapter-based uh, structure allowed us to do that. It also allowed us to focus locally on our local organizing and then having a national global network with co-founders and some staff there that would be able to handle the national narrative that needed to go out. Um, you know, between like 2014, 2019, there's so many interviews and so many panels and so many books and so many things that have come out around the Black Lives Matter movement that wouldn't have been possible to be the case if it was left on one central person or one small group of people making all of the decisions. Um, that was also really important for us to, um, to scale out the work, to have capacity for the work that we wanted to do, to build intentional community, um, but to build community across lines, to know kind of like on the Underground Railroad that if I went to Los Angeles, I had a place to stay that um, if there was an action happening and, you know, whatever I could bring to the table, um, you know, I've done graphic design for other chapters. So it was really being able to share the resources that we had, be that money, be that skill sets, um, whatever it was, and being able to share that across a bunch of people instead of it being centralized to one group or one person. Um, and most importantly, I would say the decentralized framework allowed for a leaderful movement, leaderful, um, which is to say that there's not one single leader within the movement. So even though you have these kind of top figureheads of Opal Tometi specifically and Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza um, um, and the other, other uh, popular Black Lives Matter activists, that they don't own the movement. Nobody owns the movement. It is a movement for the people. It is run by the people. Um, and whomever, however you want to step into the movement or step out, of the movement. You do that in the integrity to these guided principles. So just having a structure that was based in principles, based in integrity, based in healing, based in black love at the end of the day, um, and having a movement of people to do that together with. Um, it allowed for people like myself to really step into a leadership role um, and not feel like I was stepping on anybody's toes. Um, it allowed me to take ownership of the work that I was doing. One of the things I often say is define me by my work. I want people to remember me by my work. Um, and my work should be reflected in the things that I see, say, the things that I do, how I live my life, how I recover from bad decisions or bad mistakes, um, and how I continue to transform into the most healthy, best key that I could possibly be that is not just about the self-serving, but for the betterment of my community. Right, and so having a decentralized network allows one to do the interpersonal work, one to do the personal transformation work. It allows for so much more capacity 
but it also allows for a, if you can imagine a thinly spun web that just goes across the nation and the world and kind of encaptures, where you just have these, you know, threads that say like Black Lives Matter and you're just all interconnected in some way. Um, decentralized networks allow you to do that. Um. Yeah, I love, so I'm, so I'm just kind of hearing, like, part of it is a scale thing, it's a capacity thing, and it's about the, like, locations, um, like, location-specific, context-specific, um, and that it serves not only the, like, the movement work, but also the people doing that work. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if you could speak a little bit about, like, you mentioned Harriet's Apothecary, um, and... Um, I feel like one of the th one of the things that I definitely learned from um, friends in the movement, but just kind of observing it is is this what you've touched on this um, the ways in which it's integrated healing and mental health and, and black love work that that's not separate from the political work it is part of that um, and so I'd be curious if you could speak a little bit more about what that looks like. Um, in the New York City chapter, um, and or like in your in your own in your own life, yeah, the BLM NYC chapter um, we restructured and currently restructuring into another collective, um, and many other chapters have done that kind of to say that we have we have done the groundwork for Black Lives Matter to be a cultural thing. Um, BLM, the culture of BLM and how we organize has influenced the other current movements that you see today, such as the Women's March. Mm -hmm. um, those types of movements, or even how you see political candidates interacting and the conversations like reparations currently being on the 2020 conversation. So there has been a cultural shift in the things that America cares about and talks about, specifically related to the black community, that is not about the criminalization and the poverty, even though those are still important topics and subject, but Black Lives Matter has an a cultural shift. And so a lot of chapters has, have started to restructure and do their own type of work. And so I um, just want to name that BLMOIC is transitioning to a different collective, um, but continue to do the work. And that was important. The important part was having that base building happen so that you know how to organize, you know how to um, mobilize people, you know how to hold healing spaces for people. Um, and so in terms of how we center healing, there has always been healers in this space. Even at the m bl conference, there were healers from Harriet's Apothecary in this space. Um, Harriet's Apothecary is a black, queer, um, black, mostly black women and queer folk-led uh, healing collective um, that uses black magic, um, but Reiki energy sessions, um, meditation, um, I have been a um, freedom fighter, workshop leader for Harriet's and have done some healing spaces specifically for queer and trans folks through Harriet's Apothecary. Um, you know, because I'm someone that at the age of 14 was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. Um, you know, and like that was 2004 when nobody knew anything really about and still don't really, but definitely the black community mental illness is, was much of a taboo. I would say in the last two, three years, it's become more and more accepted. But for most of the black community, mental illness was something that, quote, we don't do, we don't get. Um, so that was a struggle growing up. 
Um, and so to, ha- to now have a community that really centers black healing and, and black wellness um, means that when I when I was having a really hard time and I was struggling with the death of my father um, and I was struggling with all these with all these shifting moving parts that there were folks from Black Lives Matter who came and knocked on my door and packed a bag and said, you're not staying in this room by yourself. You're not going to, you know, like, yeah, um, go through your grieving, um, which was like a struggle with suicide, a struggle with alcohol and all these different things. I've lost my father suddenly. Um, And so, um, but they knocked on the door. They're like, we're not gonna let you sit here alone. They came to my apartment, they mobilized around me, made sure that I ate. Um, and to this day, we still have that relationship with each other, regardless if we're a structured chapter or not. We still talk to each other on a weekly basis, sometimes daily basis. If one of us is going into surgery, we know. If one of us is going a flight internationally, we know. Um, if one of us is having a bad day or anything, we know because we continue to take care of each other, um, even without a quote-unquote political home hub because we created a home within you know each other um, and created this this kind of sanctuary of a safe space to really be vulnerable and trust each other and have a chosen it's not really a family um, but a chosen collective of people that that hold you together both personally and politically right and the and that's how you must reflect your politics your politics should reflect your personal beliefs and your personal values um, and often they do, um, and often you know your principles lean on that. Um, but yes, living with mental illness, um, but having black healing and black vulnerability um, available um, in those spaces have allowed me to really take care of myself in a different way. Um, along with five years of doing BLM work, I am going on six years of being in therapy with the same therapist consistently the same day of the week for the last three years, um, medically stabilized, um, but also not shying away from other practices of self-care um, that is cultural, um, be that doing energy sessions, be that holding public visual spaces, be that um, meditating, um, with my partner weekly or by myself weekly. Um, it's a mixture, but I would say that the container for wellness was definitely set by the Black Lives Matter movement and specifically my people around me here in New York City. Um, and you know, as we live by the Asada chant, um, which is by Asada Shakur, Shakur, there's a quote at the very end that says like, we must love and protect one another. Sometimes it says we must love and support one another. Those words are used interchangeably. But it's a chant that, you know, if you say that for five years straight, you know, you begin to really embody that. Um, and so I, I feel like my community, my collective has really embodied the words of Asada of, you know, we must love and support one another um, ongoingly. Um, and so that's also allowed me to have a platform to talk about mental illness. It's allowed me a platform to really be able to center um, queer, trans folks and our struggles with mental illness and mental health. Um, and I think that that is, for me, one of the most health-wise transformative um, practices that I've learned through my movement work. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I'm struck by like a, a few things as you talk. Like one is this, um, the consistency of this network and the reliability of it, and the 
and the repetition um, as being, it sounds like a really key part to, to making these practices sustainable. Um, and the shift from like just doing a thing to having it be a deeply embodied communal practice and culture. Um, and that's, yeah, that's really, um, that's really beautiful and really striking. Um, and I, I'm also really struck by kind of in you, you listing um, different kind of healing modalities that, that you've, that you and the folks that you've met and continue to be in community with through BLM NYC, that there's both, it's like individual therapy and then you're doing like meditation with your partner but maybe sometimes also alone but then like public vigils like that there's like a, a public ritual kind of aspect to it too um there are all these different kinds of dimensions to it um is there anything else you want to to speak about i guess i'd be curious to hear like what um like you mentioned that the, the chapter is restructuring now and it's kind of transitioning into a new collective. Um, and you also mentioned a little bit back about how there's the chapter really emphasizes like self-organization. And so I'd be curious if you want to share um, like what, what BLM NYC right now is doing and like what specifically, like what are the projects that you're involved in right now that feel like they're like really like getting you, getting you excited. Yeah. Um, We're not it. Maybe there's like, maybe you're doing <laughs> where it's really Maybe you're not. not doing anything. <laughs> maybe, maybe you hate graphic design. Oh man, so much, <laughs> sometimes, some days. Um, trust, especially when the invoices don't come in on time. Mm, um, that part. so real. Um, no, I mean, BLNYC hasn't been an active chapter actively organizing, I would say, in the last two years. Mm -hmm. um, we really put a stop on it. But that, because of the building of that work, that has led to so many campaigns that I'm a part of and a lot of campaigns that um, members in some way or another continue to support. Um, specifically, uh, Safety Beyond Policing, which is a campaign that was created um, where we took the New York City budget for what the was that? Safety Beyond safety Policing. Beyond. Mm -hmm. Was a campaign that was started where we took the budget for the NYPD um, department and we broke it down and said, if you use this money, you could allocate it and divest to invest in schools. You can invest in youth employment. You could provide free transportation for, um, for seven days a week for um, youth under the age of 18. You could um, repair NYCHA entirely. Um, and so we really interrogated the NYPD budget um, um, and fought back against NYPD adding 1,300 police officers, which ended up happening all the way, but it was a showing of resistance and it laid some groundwork. Another campaign is Swipe It Forward, which is probably my favorite campaign that we um, started by going down into the subway systems the subway stations in black and brown neighborhoods and providing free swipes onto the train. And that's because 92% uh, of those arrested currently in New York City for fair evasion are black and brown folks, primarily black and brown folks from the poorest neighborhoods, the Bronx and East New York, Brooklyn, um, and black men 
um, from the ages of 18 to 34. So there's a targeted policing of black and brown folks through the train system. Um, specifically, it's where the NYPD has spent most of their resources on for policing. And so we started this Swipe It For campaign as an act of uh, self-resistance and self-defense for black and brown folks to stop the NYPD from getting their illegal ticket quota um, and arresting people. If you don't have $2.75 for the train, you can face um, a summit. You can also be deported. You can have permanent exclusion, which means you can lose your access to public housing. You can lose um, your financial aid benefits. There's so many ways in which something as small as fare evasion as not having you know, $2.75 can lead people to jail or interaction with the police that can lead to, you know, a chokehold killing. There's so many different ways in which we try to keep our community safe. And so Swipe It Forward is my favorite action. It's an action you can do every single day. If you have an unlimited card, swipe people in for free. It's completely legal. Uh, we do political education through that, right? So for having um, some type of public action, we'll use it. If there's some type of um, news that needs to be in the community, we'll use it for that. We also just pick days where, like, uh, the first week before uh, the first week of school, students' cars usually don't work at the subway um, or they don't receive them in time. So we'll do swipe it forwards around that time to allow kids to get to them from school, um, things like that. And the most recent campaign that I'm leading is the No New Jails NYC campaign. Um, and No New Jails is an initiative that was started in September 2018 of last year as a way to fight back against Mayor Bill de Blasio's jail expansion plan. He wants to build four new jails that will cost $10 billion um, across New York City um, in uh, four boroughs except for Staten Island. Um, these jails will be massive, up to 40 to 50 um, stories tall. Um, they would require that Rikers remain open and people would have to be moved to and from Rikers. Um, there's no guarantee that Rikers will close. There's no legally binding uh, documentation or requirement. Also, Mayor Bill de Blasio will not be in office in order to ensure the closure of Rikers. So there's all these types of risks that are happening in the midst of the highest homelessness population in New York, um, the, 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 in the nation, the most segregated schools in New York. Um, the MTA is completely dysfunctional and falling apart. NYCHA housing um, is dilap dilapidated and being sold out to private investors. Um, and so people are really coming together under no new jails and saying, one, we know that you must and you can actually close Rikers without building any of these new jails, and that that $10 billion belongs to the community. It belongs to us so that we can build safer and smaller classrooms. It belongs to us so that we can have more guidance counselors in our schools versus NYPD in our schools. Um, it's so that we can repair NYCHA. If you take $30 million out of this $10 billion budget, you can repair all of NYCHA in its current state right now. Um, and so we're challenging against building these new jails and really um, asking for a more holistic, true, transformative justice system that does not replace Rikers or just expands Rikers and decentralizes Rikers, but actually um, aims to heal the damages from mass incarceration and provide more sustainable, healthy, uh, transformative ways to justice. Um, and it includes the fact that 
80% of those held on Rikers Island are there pretrial, meaning they haven't been convicted of a crime yet. And so we're also interrogating the democratic system, right? You're supposed to have a free, a fair, speedy, speedy trial. Folks like Khalif Browder should not be on Rikers Island for three years. Um, and Khalif went on to murder himself after being in Rikers Island. The majority spent in solitary confinement for allegedly stealing a backpack. Um, you know, and so we think about these different ways and that the jail and incarceration system is embedded in New York City and that we don't need these new jails, that we need resources, we need services, and that, that those funds belong to the community and the decision to build jails um, has come through rezoning, meaning that the mayor has limited the process of engagement, public input, decision making, to a decision of do we rezone New York City for 40 skys 40 foot skyscraper jails or not? That's essentially the question that we're asking. So we're fighting back against that. Um, and that campaign has really taken the brunt of my time right now, but it's powerful work that is necessary. Um, we can't commit New York City to a 10 year vision of mass incarceration. We can't have jails be taller than the Flatiron Building. Can you imagine the skies, like the skyline of New York and you have four massive jails that would incarcerate 1,600 people, uh, 6,000 people, because each facility is prompted to help 1,500 people. So they're building 1,500 cells or cages in each of these new facilities. Um, so in total, 6,000 people would be incarcerated every single day in these facilities, 80% of those currently on Rikers not even being charged with a crime. So we're really interrogating the entire system as it stands um, and really looking at that. And for me, doing this, the strategic work and the narrative building work to really try to get folks to understand the true, um, true range of mass incarceration, but also the ways in which we can fight back against that um, and retain ownership of our communities, um, retain the resources that we need, and invest in New York City into actually being the quote unquote progressive city that we want it to be and we think it to be and it's totally possible to be, but we need to um, kind of re-democratize New York City if you possibly could say that. So a lot of my work is spent on organizing, even my graphic design work is usually movement or organizing based. I'm currently doing a training manual for Wayfinder organization which is a training manual for activists. It's like a 40-page manual they hired me to design, um, which will be used at that national conference. Um, many of my small clients are movement-related, um, and most of the things that I do is to try to bring culture, um, black culture, black history, into the space, bring in black voices, um, and really shift the narrative um, of, the, of, the, of our culture from racism and uh, anti-mental health and, you know, um, building out a way that is more sustainable and healthy. So, um, yeah, I would say that my movement work has been crucial as an organizer, it has really defined my passion, it has allowed me to ground myself into something, to find my feet, um, but to also be healthy and whole and go out on these creative storytelling projects like a Black Gotham experience, um, and um, being able to really just like invest in creative work that shifts culture. You have to change culture first before you can really change anything else, including institutions, including, including policies. Um, you have to shift the culture. You know, you think about 99% um, versus 1%. 
that's a cultural change from the Occupy movement, right? That didn't exist before. Um, Black Lives Matter and now all the other hashtags about things mattering um, comes from the Black Lives Matter movement. The way that people mobilize mass and mass mobilization comes from the current movements. Um, and so, yeah. And so, yeah. And so, yeah. Um, yeah, it's um, kind of bef- between like, yeah, safe- safety beyond policing and swipe it forward, no new jails, NYC. Um, I'm just hearing like such, and you use this word a lot, this like holistic, and you keep, you, I feel like you, um, you keep on going back to this thing that you mentioned really early on from your, um, from your aunts and uncles, that, like the goal is just like the healthy, communities that are as healthy and happy and safe as, as possible and that in each of these campaigns that you're currently working on, there's a real range of like, we're gonna just swipe people, I mean, and just in air quotes, like we're gonna swipe people in, like that's part of the work and also we're gonna get into the budget and we're gonna like do all this stuff. I mean, it's really like multifaceted, holistic work that you're doing and that's um, really exciting. And I, I think I'm, um, yeah, I'd be curious if you'd, if you'd want to share it, like I, I am fascinated by people um, who maintain a sense of optimism. So when you say like it's possible for New York City um, to be redemocratized, or it's you know it's possible for them not to to build these new jails, um, and I'm kind of curious. Um, yeah, how how you like where that optimism come from, or how you how you nurture it, how you cultivate it, how you hold on to it. Yeah, I would say the um, the hope that I have is based on the faith of my people. Mm-hmm. Also, that the struggle in blackness is not new, and that my ancestors have always fought back and created new systems. And blackness, even as a culture, um, is a curated, created um, culture. Um, blackness is a, is multifaceted within itself. Um, and so, and doing the work that I do, but also coming from an upbringing that is very multifaceted. To have a father that is Muslim and connecting heavily with Islam, but then having a maternal side of the family that are both Baptist and Methodist. Um, and like having things where like, you go to this church on Christmas, and then you go to this church on New Year's, and then you go to the other church on Easter, and you literally <laughs> rotate. Um, it was like part of my upbringing around holidays. Um, and just having a lot of different input from different communities. Um, and so when I say holistic, it is holistic in the sense of health, but it's also holistic in terms of full, in terms of full embodiment of everything that um, we do. Um, but it comes deeply, I would say, from the struggle and the knowing that there's always room for better. My grandmother is also very optimistic. Um, and there's days where, you know, um, there's never, I would say there's never a day where I feel like we can't win. I feel like um, there are days where it gets harder. But there is, and I always believe that we will win um, because we have no other choice but to. And so, 
Um, even in societal, you know, losses, there are many, many wins along the way. Um, and you have to take those wins in order to continue to be sustainable. It's also building love ships and partnerships and friendships. It's not just, you know, hanging out with folks at a visual, but then going to grab drinks and dinner at a Black-owned restaurant right afterwards and continuing to build out that communal space. Um, but, you know, um, Black folks from slave ships till today, we continue to fight back and we always have fought back. And I think that it is an inherent nature of me, um, specifically, and I take that really self-specifically, it is in my nature to rebel, to resist, but also to do it in a way that is for the betterment of my community and my people. And having a deep attachment to this, this term called my people, um, where you know the African diaspora leads you into many places, which is why I have Dominican family and Bayesian family and Black Southern family, the Black Northern family, um, a family that I don't even know about uh, far and few between. You know what I mean? Like it's just like the way that I found my dad's father literally was like doing online research and reaching out to him, and then becoming this whole awareness of being Bayesian um, and embodying that and having a whole new um, way of attachment to a different set of people that I had no clue about. So you have to continue to, for me, I continue to lean on the shoulders and the, and the visions of my ancestors. I continue to love and be affirmed by my partners and by my friends and by my community. Um, and I continue to do my own self work, um, be that therapy, be that organizing, be that creating, be that, um, you know, staying in bed for a day. Whatever is, whatever is necessary to make it through, you do that. But there's always love and work around along the way. And I think that without community, um, it's really hard to, to survive. Like, nobody can make it out here alone. Um, and so you need community in order to really, for me, in order to survive, sustain, and to thrive. Um, and so that's what makes a difference for me. Um, along with just like having faith um, and having my feet planted and knowing that at the end of the day, um, even in regards to this jails fight, one of the things that I said um, when I was speaking at Columbia's uh, social work, uh, how to be on the bars conference, um, and one of the things that I said there was um, that I'm content and I will be happy um, even if we, you know, not that I'll be happy, but if we lose this fight against these jails, that at least I will be able to tell my children I fought back. I was part of the people that fought back to prevent these jails from happening. Here's the struggle. Here's the ways. Here's the photos. Here, here is the history that there were people who fought back and fought for the future of New York City to look completely differently. And I think that planting those seeds along the way will always lead to resistance um, for black and brown people in the struggle. Yeah, so that, that sense of community is not just like community in the like here and now 2019 New York City, but it's like a community for future generations and a community that goes back generations and generations and that there's like a real direct what I'm hearing is like you understand yourself as being a part of a really direct 
and multifaceted <laughs> lineage. Yeah. lineage of um, and, a, and a commitment to, to black struggle. Yeah. Um, even my work with uh, the Black Gotham Experience, um, which is a black visual storytelling project based here in New York City, uh, talks about the African diaspora and the so not the, just the impacts, but the ingrainment of blackness throughout New York City since the 1625 when it was Dutch New York um, onward. Um, we talk about specifically the 1712 and 1741 rebellion, um, the slave rebellion in New York City um, during 1712 and 1741. We talk about in 1643, what is now Washington Square Park was once called Land of the Blacks. And it was the first land in New York City that we have on record that was owned by black people. And not just owned, we're talking like 12 acres, 27 acres, 40 acres of land that spread from what is now lower Manhattan up to Soho and Chinatown, um, considered land of the blacks. Um, and being a New Yorker and being really attached to that history um, and being brought into the space by Kamal Ware, who is the founder of Black Gotham, um, and Goodwill William Ellis, who is the creative designer, lead curator, um, musician genius, uh, part of Black Gotham, and being part of that team and being, being part of the BGX family. Um, I was brought, I learned about Black Gotham by going on a walking tour um, by my friend MJ who took me on a walking tour and we talked about the 1712 Rebellion. It's the first time as a New Yorker, as a black New Yorker, that I even knew that there were black folks who were here that didn't escape from slavery um, and come to New York. Right? There's never really an understanding of like how black folks get to the North, but actually knowing that we were already here, and that we had been in New York since 1625, and the Dutch had brought us here. Um, from robbed pirate ships. Um, and so they robbed uh, Brazilian ships, Spanish ships that were going to Brazil. Um, and still, the first people that came here were 12 folks, probably from Angola. Um, and they cleared the land and they expanded Broadway and they built Wall Street, um, but also went on to be sold on Wall Street. We don't talk about the history of slavery on Wall Street in New York City, but the first rebellion of 1712 happened on Wall Street, um, and it happened because one of the things that why was because slaves were being sold and rented out on Wall Street, um, and they rebelled, um, and uh, it's known as the Great Conspiracy of the Negro Rebellion. Um, but I think about that work as a New Yorker, and it really has the work that I've learned from Black Gotham and being a walking tour guide and being a curator and being really embraced into that collective from going on a walking tour, so being someone who was on the walking tour to now leading walking tours, um, a deep attachment to history, a deep attachment to resistance, a deep attachment to knowing that my people always fought back, but that we contributed greatly. Um, that Trinity Church, was crafted and at least involved some black hands. Um, you know, and just knowing those very, very small things come from a linear history of understanding that black folks have this this history of resistance and that it lives within us to resist um, always. And so, yeah, there is a there is a history and I think I'm very attached to 
the history of my people. I'm very attached to also American history and navigating the complexities of how those two things overlap to be a black American and to love America. Um, as Langston Hughes said, and, and, you know, but America doesn't love me. Um, and so just like thinking of all the different ways in which black culture and then being a black person and being a black queer trans person navigating in this current world, um, but being able to do so in so many different ways in so many different areas is a blessing. Um, and to be able to do that while taking care of myself um, and by being able to build love ships and being able to um, dream about a future um, is remarkable, but also radical, also revolutionary. Um, and it's my faith, but also the legacy of blackness that tells me that this is what we can do and that you know, it's also like to be able to geek out. Like I'm a black nerd, I'm a black geek. Like that's what we do. We go to Black Gotham and we like talk about like French sex books and just like <laughs> just crazy weird stuff at the same time, like drinking rum and being like, yeah, you know, rum was created because they were like hyper producing so much, so much uh, sugarcane in the islands and Barbados and Jamaica during the British colonization of the islands in the 16th and 1700s, that's where you get rum from. You get rum because they produce so much that it would just sit and ferment. Um, and then you get this beautiful, amazing drink, right? <laughs> but where does that history come from? Mm. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but to be able to geek out even throughout my life in all these different ways, to be able to honor my ancestors, to be able to embrace my loved ones, to build new friendships, to build new love ships, um, to have a, have a dream of the future of New York um, and be able to do all that as a black, queer, trans person um, and to live with that joy that comes, you know, even with the struggles, even with the hardships of being homeless at times to coming from a really, like, mixed upbringing that at times is really hard and really weird, which is why I'm in therapy for the past six <laughs> years, right? Like, um, no, but really being able to hold all of that within oneself, which goes back to, like, how do you define your queerness? Like, I must be queer. I also was born the weekend of Pride, and every year Pride falls around my birthday. So, you know, it's just like, it just so happens that um, all these different ways the universe, I feel, has blessed me to line up in a way and to be blessed by having deep friendships by, with great people, um, and to be blessed to have so many great opportunities, um, even in the hardships, even in the struggles, um, to be able to still sustain, survive, and like thrive in many different ways. Um, I just, I have to say, I've never heard the word love shit before, but I'm <laughs> definitely gonna, Borrow that. You know what? I, you know, I appreciate that. Just <laughs> cut it the black trans person. <laughs> I definitely. Um, well, I feel like there's been um, there's been so much that you've shared, and so much that I think um, is certainly a gift to myself as someone who's been able to sit and listen to kind of all these I different stories you. and um and I think it'll be a gift to anyone who is fortunate enough to click on the beautiful picture that's going to be posted on our website oh, soon man. but um 
um, perhaps a way to to kind of close. Um, well, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of add anything that you feel like we haven't touched on, but um, you're giving me the go-ahead to kind of ask um, my final kind of wrap-up question, which is you you kind of ended on this, like, um, um, that you're holding on to this, like, this dream of a future of New York that um, that is a place where black joy and black, love and queer love and trans love um, and uh, health and well-being is in abundance. And I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious as a way to close, if you could tell us more, like, like, what does that dream feel like? Like, what would be like, what would be that day in that future? Should it when it <laughs> comes to pass. Yeah. Um, I think about the, when we were in Cleveland, it was one of the first times where I was just really thrown into a small geographical area because we really take, took over the campus of hundreds of black folks and just seeing black folks be communally safe and communally joyful and smiling at each other and saying hello. And when we do swipe it forward, it's part of that community building. The main point is one of the main points that you have to offer the swipe. We have to acknowledge there is somebody there in need. You have to at least say hi. And we don't do that in New York. You know, we look down. We never. We're always busy. We're always going. And so, continue to build out a sense of community, regardless if that is, you know, across racial, intra-racial, or intra-racial. If that is, you know, and with across genders and transness, we have to be able to love and protect and support one another at the end of the day. And so when I look at that world, I look at a world that is full of abundance and doing just that. I look at a world that centers and cares about our youth and our education and the health, not just, you know, the physical health, but the mental health, the emotional health, the spiritual health of each other. I think about the access to clean food and healthy food and clean water. I think about us not looking at NYCHA and public housing as a place where people should just be happy they have housing. And so, you know, if there's pissy stairwell, so what? If the elevator doesn't work, so what? Because you should be grateful to have housing. Public housing should not be this, you know, thing set off in the corner. Everybody lives in public housing. We all are public people living in housing. And so we should have the same expectation for people who have to go through, you know, an institutional providing of housing um, and caring about everybody having adequate, equitable housing, having adequate access to health care, um, and specifically black and trans folks being embraced with love and not being murdered. Black trans women are still being murdered at high level rates. And, Let's actually talk about that, but not just talk about it, but create practices and containers of safety. Let's create practices. And the way that I have folks that check in on me, I want everybody to have access to a community that checks in on them and makes sure that they get home safely. If you're in an Uber or you take a two-hour train ride home, right? And to be able to really have the decentralization framework that we have within the movement that's based in love and kindness and liberation, um, have that be centered 
to our society, have that be centered to America. And I think, uh, you know, having a dream as a trans person is to also have a dream of transness, of, of transformation. It is to really identify oneself within your community, within your neighborhood, and figure out how can I transform this into the better way. And if everybody could just embody principles of love, care, and transformation, you know, of power, love, and miracles, of all these different things that we have within ourselves, and be able to use that to for the betterment of community, not for any self-serving purposes, right? Um, I get the opportunity to be part of this project, but really important for me, part of this project is to really explore my, just because I'm a trans person, look at all the other things that I have done. I'm not defined by my transness, but my transness has impacted how I define the world and how I look at the world and how I engage in different conversations in different spaces. And so when I look at this, this world that is one and done, if possible, you know, um, it needs to be and it must be transformed into a world that is more holistic, equitable, um, and for the betterment of everybody. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, living in whatever community you live in, uh, be that you forcibly migrated there or you migrated there because you wanted to or you ended up where you are, we have to continue to build together connectively. And I think that that world would be a beautiful world um, and it would be a world that just brings you joy and you get to, you know, I can geek out on this all day. I can geek out on what I see and what I feel. I just I think I can't verbalize it, but it brings a smile to my face and it makes me feel very happy and joyful. And I think that most of it is because I know it's possible. I know that it's possible. Um, well, since I'm a seminary student, I'm going to conclude by saying amen. Yes. Which means let it be so. Yes. Let it be so. Yes. Um, and thank Inshallah. You. <laughs> mm. Um, well, thank you again so much for taking the time out, um, and... No, I appreciate you guys. This project is amazing, necessary, mandatory, um, and I'm glad that it's going to be captured and archived as a historian geek, you know? <laughs> I could geek out on it all the time. Not just press play on me, but everybody mm. else that you're doing, I'm excited for the project. Wouldn't it be incredible to do a walking tour of the Trans Oral History Project? We could do it. We could do it. We could do it. All right, we're going to do it. <laughs>